0: Welcome, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of April 27th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. The stolen photos that no one knew were gone. Wheat Ridge Police Reunites Vintage Photos with Rightful Owner. By Joe Davis, the Jeffco Transcript. Lakewood EV Earth Day was a snowy block party for the community. By Joe Davis, for the Jeffco Transcript. Vandermeer Speedway to close in October. Owners looking for a new drag racing location by Deb Hurley-Bropst. Climate change drives need for firefighters. Colorado has acute shortage by Olivia Prinzel, the Colorado Sun. Ratepayer Revolt, Demands End to Dependence on Gas-Fired Energy by Eric Galatas, Public News Service and following up with various articles. The Stolen Photos that No One Knew Were Gone Weiridge Reunites Vintage Photos with Rightful Owner by Joe Davis The story begins with the warrant served. At that time, Wheat Ridge Police recovered property that did not belong to the person they arrested. Wheat Ridge Police Public Information Officer Joanna Small did what so many organizations have done in the past years. She placed a notice on Facebook. The recovered property was family photos, some that looked like they were more than 80 years old. According to the post, the evidence technicians, quote, did not have the heart to destroy them because they are obviously someone's cherished family history. WRP did perform a search online to find the name of Blanche Ashmore, one of the people in the recovered photos. The rest of the work was done via the Internet in about 24 hours. Small and her team captured the moment that the owner of the photos, Cheryl Ashmore, was reunited with the images. Cheryl Ashmore told Small that she didn't even know that the photos were missing. She moved recently and remembers that day. We had my trunk open and the moving van opened, so there are so many people going in and out of the property over there at 38th and Wadsworth that I'm sure someone saw something and grabbed something. So, boxes, not knowing what was in them. Ashmore said she does remember missing a tote full of beads, however. The missing photos were from a family project Ashmore was in charge of to digitize the photos. She had another container of photos to digitize. Small is heard on the video pointing out that the the fact that the old family photos did Do not get unpacked immediately after a move. Ashmore agreed, adding that it was easy to lose track during the move. I had two boxes that said Ashmore family pictures, and I knew I had one. I went in this morning and saw it and was like, yeah, it's there. However, she was missing that second box. Ashmore arrived at the station with more photos to prove that she owned the missing set. The result was a nice history lesson about the Ashmore family. And their lives in the area. In the video, she shared that her Aunt Marjorie was a missionary at the Pillar of Fire, which was at modern day 84th and Federal. Ashmore was connected, also connected the name that WRP's internet search found. Blanche Ashmore is Cheryl's grandmother. A couple of friends who know Ashmore told her about the post on Facebook and a post on the app next door. She told Small that the photos were valuable because the family came to the area in the early 1900s, and the photos are proof of that. Small recorded a bit of the process in which Ashmore legally regained ownership of her property. It's a bit of an education for anyone interested in police procedures as well. As WRP wrote in the video post, we couldn't have designed a more picture-perfect, pun-totally-intended, ending. Bandamere Speedway to close in October. Owners looking for a new drag racing location by Deb Hurley-Brobst. The roar of drag race engines will go silent in Morrison in October when Bandamere Speedway closes for good in part because drag racing and residential development aren't always a good mix. With the burgeoning residential development in the area, the Bandamers are planning to sell their property along C-470 and find a new location in the Metro Denver area, according to John Bandemir Jr., the Speedway's chief spiritual officer, who released a video message on April 21st on the closure plan. We are prepared to surrender the location we have called home for six decades, Bandemere Jr. said. Morrison Mayor Chris Wolf said he was excited for the next chapter for the Bandemere family. Of course, they will greatly be missed, and they have been a wonderful neighbor to the town, Wolf said. We wish them the best on their 65th anniversary of racing. According to Bandemere Jr., John Bandemere Sr. and his wife Frances opened the racetrack originally in Narbana 1956 as an expansion of their automotive machining and auto parts business and to provide, quote, a place for people, especially for young people, to enjoy the speed and performance of the automobile and to get off the streets. In 1958, because of neighbors' concerns in Arvada, the Bandamers moved to what at that time was a remote area west of Denver against the Hogback. Fast forward to 2023, and again, the venue is looking for a new home to allow drag race enthusiasts to continue to enjoy the sport. As we close this chapter, our family is taking the time to reflect on the hundreds, maybe thousands, of memories on Thunder Mountain, and they are great memories. Vandermeer Jr. said, Our relationships with employees, racers, sponsors, sanctioning bodies, guests, and service providers will remind us daily of what a privilege it's been for my family to continue the legacy started by my parents. He said, Knowing how the Rooney Valley has grown, the family has been proactively looking for another location for about a year. Much the same as in 1956, the opportunity for a multi-use facility for drag racing is providing an exciting opportunity for our family though a stressful one he said in 2021 the bandamere hosted a community meeting through jeff co planning and zoning to rezone the 136 acre speedway property to significantly increase what the property could be used for including commercial and mixed use residential developments The proposed ODP would limit residential development on the site to a maximum of 400 units and contain triggers requiring retail development before commercial development could take place. CHEFCO Planning and Zoning has not responded yet about whether the rezoning request was formally filed. Liquid ev Earth Day was a snowy block party for the community by Joe Davis. A smattering snow did not stop a small crowd from attending Earth Day celebrations in Lakewood. The April 22nd event at Heritage Lakewood Belmar Park offered a mix of educational opportunities paired with food and music. Lakewood Sustainability Manager Jonathan Wachtel said the event, which is in its 13th year, started as a workplace fair to help city employees learn about conservation and sustainability. Over the years, we also wanted to make sure that it was just a fun community event to bring people together to celebrate the love of our community, Watchell said. He and others underscored the educational aspects of the day. The Lakewood Forestry Department gave away brochures with information local plant life. The department had a few succulents on hand, packs of wildflower seeds, and a ponderosa pine seedling. The aim was to encourage people to grow native plants that typically need less water than non-native species and are better for the Jefferson County area yards. The Jefferson County Public Library gave away bookmarks with live seeds embedded in the paper. People can also plant the bookmarks to see what grows library also announced registration for summer programming, themed Cultivate Kindness. You can register on the library website. Lakewood Arts Parks and Recreation employees demonstrated yoga skills and awarded flexible folks with fidget spinners emblazoned with the department's contact information. They wanted people to know registration is open for programs, classes, and leagues, including activities for seniors. One of the city's partners, Excel Energy, gave away free light bulbs. LED lights, which last longer, are made primarily of a non glass casing, use significantly less power than regular light bulbs. Excel also showcased a rehabbed, solar powered tiny house. Excel officials said they also wanted to bring attention to incentives, including a $500 rebate on electric vehicle charging stations, and to take feedback on recent rate hikes. Meanwhile, artisans sold their wares and just hung out. Flower Street Farm had tons of info on bees, honey, beeswax, and more. Tatekin Tree Company brought in a mushroom model, like one that several people had around the booth had seen in their yards. If you see this, the tree is in trouble, the Tatekin representative said, going on to describe the many possible problems that could be underlying. Face Nectar was responsible for all the kids running around with beautifully emblazoned faces. Another boutique, Minerals and Metals, was all about the Casa Bonita opening. Among a booth full of rocks and crystals were South Park characters made of obsidian. Other vendors included the Environmental Protection Agency, which brought pencils made of recycled tires. Undestructible. Is a nonprofit organization sold decorative and sustainable planters and products to raise money and awareness for victims of domestic violence. Most of the afternoon was framed by the sounds of the big hooray bluegrass band from Golden, which played despite the cold weather. They made the day feel a little warmer in the snowy landscape. Significant space at the celebration was dedicated to the electric vehicles. Watchell says it's the second year the electric cars are included in the festival. Drive Clean Colorado is an organization that helps promote the transition to electric vehicles, he said. They do a lot of public outreach. They also do a lot of work to help local governments with the transition in terms of how to electrify your fleet and that type of thing. Drive Clean Colorado was a partner in the celebration and sponsored the Ride and Drive. The public got a chance to ride in electric vehicles throughout the day, some driven by local owners. Wheat Ridge City Council Grapples with Statewide Child Care Crisis by Joe Davis Officials in Wheat Ridge are taking small steps to alleviate a crisis in child care access and affordability. Their aim is to expand the number of child care facilities in the city. A report late last year highlighted the problem across the metro area. It found that nearly one in 10 parents or guardians reported they could not access child care at least one week in the past 12 months. The study by the nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute also linked access issues to other crises. It found, for instance, that 39.7% of parents who had issues finding child care also reported poor Mental and general health. Wheat Ridge City Council acknowledged links like those in its plans. Specifically, the council voted to allow childcare centers in zones that previously prohibited them. This means providers can look in areas previously marked as restricted commercial and neighborhood commercial zones. City planner Scott Cutler predicted that once access opens, demand will follow. He explained that the Planning Commission has had several requests from child care providers who want to open new centers. Cutler and the Commission had to decline many of these requests because zoning prohibited a daycare center in many of the locations requested. Probably one of the biggest requests we get, maybe over the years, in terms of people wanting to open and then finding that they can't in a certain location. Cutler said Cutler went on to say, quote, there's a major lack of child care in Wheat Ridge. The plans in the form of a memo that got a consensus vote on April 17th also require child care centers to comply with the stringent state standards for the welfare of kids. This means reworking language in the current city code to align with the state requirements. Councilman Corey Stites pointed out that the state standards will cause some spaces to improve their conditions. Stites disclosed that his previous experience running a daycare during the pandemic, pointing out that quote, it's incredibly difficult to get and maintain a childcare license. You have to have all the sprinklers and bells and whistles on your units," Stites said. So we are introducing a much safer brand of retail. In those areas. An example is a daycare that opens up inside an old church or a strip mall that requires owners to maintain high standards of property care in order to keep the daycare open. Keep an eye on the Jeffco transcript for more on the decision. The council also decided to change the way subdivision public hearings were conducted. There was an issue of requiring public hearings after development phases were already decided. This is a language change that will come with increased notice of public input sessions and the approval process. The other memo addressed parking designations and changes to the code to make parking less restrictive in congested areas. You can find more information, including the full Wheat Ridge City Council study session meeting on YouTube, the full memos on WheatRidgeSpeaks.org and on the Wheat Ridge City Council website. The next regular council meeting is at 6.30 p.m. April 24th. The meeting can be attended at the Municipal Building, 7500 West 29th Avenue, Wheat Ridge, or online. Rate-payer revolt. Demands end to dependence on gas-fired energy. By Eric Galatas, Public News Service. Consumer advocates held a ratepayer revolt at the Colorado State Capitol to urge lawmakers to address what they see as the root cause of the recent extreme spikes in utility bills the state's reliance on natural gas. Danny Katz, executive director of the Colorado Public Interest Research Group, said at the April protest, lawmakers and utilities should take steps to protect ratepayers by tapping new federal funds to speed up the transition to sources such as wind and solar, which are produced locally and are not commodities traded on a global market. Quote, And if we want to make sure that we are not getting ripped off as consumers into the future, said Katz, we need to do more to reduce our reliance on gas to heat and power our homes and businesses. Excel Energy has blamed spikes in heating bills on rising wholesale gas prices and market forces beyond its control. It has launched a cost adjustment plan to give consumers some relief. CoPERG, PIRG and other groups are urging the legislature to take steps to lower the state's independence on gas, including maximizing efficiency and ending ratepayer subsidies for new gas infrastructure lobbying, and legal expenses. Excel and other utilities have added clean energy capacity, but continue to see natural gas as an important source for meeting peak energy demand and keeping the grid working at night when and when the wind isn't blowing. Katz said we now have roadmaps and technologies, including increased storage capacity and regulating peak demand via smart appliances to wean ourselves off of natural gas. 20 years ago, maybe we didn't have the technology. And maybe we needed to have a much more diverse portfolio, said Katz. But I think we've seen the price of renewables have come down. The capacity that we have to put more energy from renewables has gone up. Methane, the primary component of natural gas, is more than 85 times more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere than CO2 and is a major source of climate pollution. Katz said he believes now is the time for utilities across the state to move away from a fuel source subject to global supply chains and disruptive geopolitical events. There's a lot of federal infrastructure money coming as as well, said Katz, so there's never been a better time for utilities to step up and say, okay, we can start to reduce this reliance and move away from gas. This public news service via the Associated Press Story Share, of which Colorado Community Media is a member. Climate change drives need for firefighters. Colorado has acute shortage. By Olivia Prinzel, The Colorado Sun. Standing atop a parched grassy knoll in the shadow of Pikes Peak and in front of miles of earth scorched by the Waldo Canyon fire more than a decade ago, federal, states, and local fire experts called for more training and new approaches to fight the public safety crisis of wildfire in a growing state. For many, The mile-wide wall of fire approaching the ridgeline bordering the Cedar Heights neighborhood in 2012 remains a vivid memory. Embers, the size of boxes, rained from the sky, Colorado Springs Fire Chief Randy Royal remembers. The flames destroyed 347 homes and killed two people, but stopped within feet of homes in Cedar Heights, thanks in part to the mitigation work by the community. But the risk of wildfire has increased in the past decade with more homes being built in the area next to undeveloped forest and climate change bringing more intense fires to areas that were once not thought to be at risk. For years, we viewed this fire problem that we have as being more of a natural resource event. And as we've watched the forest health deteriorate, as we've seen the changes in the weather, and as we watch the growth in To the more rural areas of Colorado and across our country, we have created a public safety crisis. Mike Morgan, director of Colorado's Division of Fire Prevention and Control, said April 19th. More than 36,000 homes lie in wildfire-prone areas where development intermingles with wildland vegetation in Colorado Springs, which ranks as the largest wildland-urban interface in the state. Nationwide, that number has grown to 99 million people, or one-third of the U.S. population living in areas at risk of wildfire. Yet most have no idea what dangers they face, federal experts say. We're going to have to learn to live with fire in our country, Morgan said. We just have to learn ways to mitigate or lessen the likelihood or the severity of these events when they occur. Morgan joined U.S. Fire Administrator Lori Moore Merrill and other fire experts to discuss the challenges in addressing climate change, drought-driven wildfires that are growing in intensity, size, and destructiveness. In the first three months of 2023, there have been more than 9,000 wildfires across the country, Moore Merrill said. About 800 people have died in residential structure fires this year. And last year, there were more than 1.2 million structure fires and 69,000 wildfires that burned more than 7.5 million acres, she said. The threats of catastrophic wildfire in America's, America's interface communities demands national attention. That's why we're here, she said. It demands a unified approach because our current approaches to wildfire mitigation and management do not match the scale of the problem. There's a need for more training, experts said, explaining that methods used to extinguish structure fires are different from those used to fight flames along the wildland-urban interface. Most municipal firefighters lack the adequate training and equipment needed to fight fires efficiently and safely in the wildland-urban interface, said Edward Kelly, president of the International Association of Firefighters, which represents 335,000 firefighters across the U.S. and Canada. While most fire departments are responsible for fighting fires along the wildland-urban interface, about 78% of them have unmet training needs according to the latest U.S. Fire Administration report published earlier this year. Two-thirds of those departments lack sufficient wildland personal protective clothing. The IAFF, in partnership with the U.S. Fire Administration's National Fire Academy, will host a course to teach firefighters how to attack fires that spark near the border of urban and wooded areas. Colorado's Department of Public Safety requested $6.5 million to meet increasing training and certification demands statewide and maintain a robust firefighter training and certification program, according to a November 2022 budget document. But the Joint Budget Committee rejected the request in March. The JBC rejected the request because the department was already receiving money to support training, some still unspent, and some local jurisdictions were already underway with similar training, said Representative Shannon Byrd, a Westminster Democrat who sits on the powerful panel. We were unable to increase at this point in time our ability to expand training for firefighters, Morgan said. We will be back asking for that. We understand there's only so much to go around, but this is a problem. We have to invest in our local communities. Colorado's firefighting corps has failed to keep up with the growing demand to fight wildfires. According to the U.S. Fire Administrator's report, the wildland-urban interface continues to grow by about 2 million acres per year. The state needs about 2,500 more career firefighters and 1,100 volunteer firefighters in the next 12 to 18 months to address the growing demand of wildfire response, Morgan said. The number of people interested in becoming firefighters is declining across the country, said Kevin Quinn, first vice chair of the National Volunteer Fire Council. Fire departments that normally receive thousands of applications a year are now receiving a few hundred. Health risks associated with the job and long hours, mainly due to staffing shortages, make it hard to recruit and retain firefighters. As numbers of interested applicants have fallen in the past three decades, the call volume to volunteer fire departments has tripled, Quinn said. The industry also struggles to recruit and retain women and people of color. Only 11.6% of career firefighters were Hispanic or Latino, 8.5% were Black, and 1.3% were Asian, according to the most recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Women make up about 4% of career firefighters and 11% of volunteer firefighters, the National Fire Protection Agency reported in 2021. Leaders also called for the need to implement building regulations that would protect growing communities on the edge of wildland. Michelle Steinberg, Director of Wildfire for the National Fire Protection Association, called for a universal code that would require all homes and businesses in the wildfire-prone areas to adhere to fire-resistant building standards. Unfortunately, Time and time again, what we see is that communities rebuild in the same way in the same area as those that burn to the ground, Steinberg said. Without a new approach, we're destined to repeat history at our own peril against a fierce and unrelenting opponent. We won't stop wildfires from occurring, but codes and standards are the means to better withstand and lessen impact in the wildland-urban interface, End quote. The failure by local, state, and federal governments to impose preventative building codes is increasing the fire problem, added Shane Ray, president of the National Fire Sprinkler Association. Quote, codes and standards established through a consensus process are a minimum, and they should not be picked apart in a political environment, Ray said. The more buildings built to an outdated or weakened code and the interface between the forest and the city and where to fire departments are understaffed under or lacking resources is increasing the fire problem in America. End quote. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the states. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Amid risk of living on wildfire-prone grasslands, Boulder County's Search for Solutions, by Tim Drugan, Boulder Reporting Lab. The Marshall Fire exposed the need to reduce wildfire risk on the grasslands of Boulder County. But there's a problem. Even the best prevention techniques on the plains don't work as well as they do in the mountains. Grasslands are much different than forests, said Catherine Suding, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, who was advising a Boulder County grasslands working group established to help prevent another Marshall fire. On the plains, Suding said, a fire can burn all plants in its path only to have Intact roots grow back stalks within months. Trees take longer to return. If a fire thins a forest through a wildfire or a prescribed burn, that forest enjoys at least a few years of reduced risk. Grasslands don't. We might get a year of protection after a prescribed fire on the plains, said Stefan Reinold, a resource manager for county parks and open space. Reinald is also a member of the Grasslands Working Group, along with scientists, land managers, ditch company managers, and fire protection district members. The group is a subset of the Boulder County Fire Shed that is made up of a similar cohort of local scientists and land managers working to reduce fire risk. A former forester for the county, Reinald said prescribed burns are difficult to implement in the mountains, and even harder on the plains. Much of the county's open space on the plains is leased agricultural land. Farmers who might be open to their grasslands being scorched intermittently probably don't want them burned every year, which is what it would take to be effective. Still, the public, especially those recovering in the Marshall Fire-burned scar of Superior and Louisville, want something done. There's a lot of pressure, of course, to come up with solutions, Reinold said, and he is sympathetic. But one of our biggest concerns is there is no clear solution with grasslands. If there were, we would all be all about it. We'd be out there trying to decrease fire hazard in every aspect we could, end quote. Reinald said since the Marshall Fire, the county has been criticized by residents for mismanaging its grasslands. One of the suggestions residents often make is increased grazing, but much of the area burned by the Marshall Fire had been grazed multiple times in the year leading up to the fire. We grazed three times, Reinold said, which is getting to the level of overgrazing in some areas that about Louisville. Mowing is another recommendation he often hears, though it cuts some fire fuel. Mowing leaves vegetation on the ground where it can still carry fire. And the amount of mowing required is untenable. Reynolds said Boulder County has 343 miles of agricultural property lines. Should parks and open space put a 100-foot buffer along property lines to protect vulnerable neighborhoods, it would equal almost 4,000 acres they'd have to mow and often, because the grass keeps growing. Reinold raised the possibility of planting low-growing vegetation where prairie and neighborhoods meet, the idea being such vegetation wouldn't burn with the ferocity of dried-out grass. There's no data saying that would work, Reinold said, but we could try. But weather conditions that f- fueled the Marshall Fire might have overcome even perfect grasslands management. Eighty mile-per-hour winds came after a fall that saw almost no moisture. Anytime a fire has gotten established with winds less than 30 miles per hour, we've gotten control of it, Reinald said. But nothing has been able to stop a fire backed by 80-mile-per-hour winds. Suiting agreed saying the risk of catastrophic fires will increase as fall in Boulder gets drier with worsening climate change. Quote, there are actually many grassland fires each year in this area, she said, but most occur when the plants are green and weather conditions are not super windy, so they get put out before they get big. In wind events like what occurred during the Marshall Fire, it would be hard to imagine that any active management of grasslands could reduce the risk. Suting said a better bet might be investing in active patrols to spot ignitions on high-risk days and safeguarding homes. Such safeguarding also known as home hardening is the specialty of the Wildfire Partners program that has mainly worked with homeowners to reduce their risk of fire. At risk, fire risk in unincorporated western Boulder County" Using money from the 1A sales tax that passed last year, Wildfire Partners is expanding into eastern Boulder County, helping residents understand the fire risks certain choices might pose to their homes. Like wooden fences, shrubbery up against siding, and vegetation prone to violent incineration. Like junipers. Reinold said home hardening, coupled with experimental techniques like targeted grazing, is our best bet. To avoiding another Marshall fire, targeted grazing puts cows on high risk areas like borders of prairie and neighborhoods to munch down fuel before the fall shoulder fire season. Suting added that creating better models for grassland fire risk, an, un- an historically underrepresented research area when compared to forest wildfires, should be a top priority. We need to know more before making quick decisions, she said, explaining that hasty actions to reduce fire risk might not only fail to do so but could also harm the landscape. If we only think about reducing grassland fuels and do it by mowing or other treatments, that might really damage soil health and biodiversity. We don't want that, particularly since grasses grow, regrow within a few weeks after a treatment. End quote. That's one of the goals of the working group. In early June, members said they hope to put out a document to show residents what is already being done to address the fire risk on grasslands and what practices should be adopted moving forward. The main takeaways of their work will likely be a combination approach, some grazing, some prescribed burns, and some investment from the public in protecting their properties as best they can. There's no silver bullet, Reinald said. If there was clear information of what to do, people would have done it already. This Boulder Reporting Lab story via the Associated Press story share, of which Colorado Community Media is a member. Gorillas and other zoo animals enjoy eating local. Horticulturists Tend the Denver Zoo's Kitchen Garden by Kirsten Dahl-Collins, special to Colorado Community Media. Cal, a 380-pound African gorilla at the Denver Zoo, grasped his floppy banana leaf the way some people hold a cone of caramel swirl ice cream. Slowly and deliberately, he savored every bite. Over at the zoo's Tropical Discovery Building... Rex, a rhinoceros iguana native to the Caribbean, munched his way through a special breed of spineless prickly pear cactus. Nearby, a shy 40-pound capybara named Rebecca, a rodent native to Central and South America, couldn't resist a fresh pile of water lettuce. It was snack time at the Denver Zoo, courtesy of production manager Patrick Crowell and his two staffers Marcel Condevaux, and Keith Good. Smiling, the three horticulturists watched the animals polish off their greens. Crowell and his staff had grown these tropical plants in several designated city park greenhouses, which serve as kitchen gardens for many of the zoo's 3,000 animals. Whether it's cardamom and ginger leaves, banana trees, or hibiscus flowers, the greenhouse staff enables zoo animals to eat local, even if they crave flora from across the globe. The gardeners also grow landscaping plants for animal enclosures from tall stands of euphorbia cactus to sweetgum trees. We're trying to grow as much as we can locally, Crowell said, adding that growing exotics can take quite a bit of research. The greenhouse specialties are grown without pesticides, using recycled water. All of this saves money the zoo would otherwise spend importing tropical plants from Florida. One greenhouse holds a grove of banana trees, which are especially useful since every part of the plant can be used. Crowell said the fruit is fed to fruit bats, while the floppy leaves are popular snacks for many animals, including sloths and smaller reptiles, as well as great apes. Elephants and rhinos chew the banana stalks, which increases their fiber intake and acts as a natural toothbrush. The production staff works closely with the zoo's battery of veterinarians and nutritionists. Animal diets have come a long way since, the, since 1896 when the Denver Zoo began with a single-caged bear cub named Billy Bryan in City Park. Although history does not record what Billy ate, it would probably make today's zoo nutritionists shudder. These days, animal diets are strictly controlled in order to keep them healthy. Often, that means adding the right vegetation. We get calls if an animal is ill, Crowell said. Many of the plants in the zoo greenhouses have medicinal qualities. Crowell said that leaves from the ginger and cardamom plants help prevent heart problems in great apes. Colorful blue, green, and yellow lorikeets, a small parrot from Australia, keep their feathers healthy by pecking and hibiscus flowers. According to Crowell, the pollen and nectar of these burnt flowers supply the birds with important amino acids. Some plants are equally important to animals' mental health. The Denver Zoo earned its accreditation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums by taking animal wellness well-being, seriously, and that requires plenty of the branches, twigs, and leaves known as brows. Cuttings from a range of trees and shrubs, including willow, mulberry, and butterfly bush, are important not only just for nutrition, but also to encourage natural activities like foraging. For example, Crowell said Tundra, the female grizzly bear, enjoys stripping and eating the leaves off hackberry branches, while the zoo's Mongolian horses prefer to chew bark off cottonwood logs. Elephants and primates like to exercise their teeth on bamboo stalks. Several passive solar greenhouses known as hoop houses help extend the growing season for browse. And whether it's time to prune trees and bushes in City Park, Crowell and his team are there collecting boughs, twigs, and leaves. Crow also roams the zoo's 80 acres, searching for underutilized patches of dirt where he and his staff can grow additional browse in the summer months. Last year, they supplied more than 1,300 pounds of leafy trimmings to zoo denizens. When the zoo's urban farmers aren't running loads of produce over to hungry zebras, and giraffes, they are searching for more ways to maximize every square foot of growing space. Even the rafters of the Tropical Discovery Building are being put to use with a hydroponic growing table that nourishes crops of collard greens. According to Crowell, many animals love nutrient-dense greens like collard and dandelion. Perhaps we humans should take a few dieting cues from the zoo. Local Voices, Achieving Swing, by Jerry Fibionic, columnist. Having thalassophobia, fear of deep water, as an integral part of my psyche, The Boys in the Boat is not a book I ordinarily would have read. But after a couple of literary-minded friends highly recommended it, I decided to give it a try. I'm thrilled I did because the story is far more than a historical account of the University of Washington's eight or rowing crew's quest for gold in the 1936 Olympics. It is a tale of grit and determination of working-class young men who struggled and experienced most challenging times throughout their lives but refused to be fated by their circumstances. It's also a deep dive into the complexity of the of and philosophy behind the sport which leads to the most telling aspect for me. It's an allegory for reaching mental and emotional flow, the point at which all seems to be in perfect harmony, all resistance vanishes, and you feel completely whole and perhaps moving on an ethereal plane. After reading the prologue and first chapter in which the author Daniel James Brown points, paints the background, rather, Seattle during the Great Depression replete with Hoovervilles, and introduces Joe Rance, his heart of the crew, I knew how much of my waking moments over the next week would be spent. Four years into the Great Depression, conditions remained bleak for many Americans, 25% of whom were jobless. Soup lines and shanty towns were regular features across the landscape. The tolls taken on the people weren't only economic, they were also personal, psychological Millions were reduced to survival mode. For the downtrodden, how one looked or what they wore was irrelevant. But shabby dress accompanied with an unkempt appearance was a badge of shame and source of ridicule for young men like Joe, who, through their never-give-up approach to life, managed to matriculate in a college or university. And that is where we meet Joe. Joe as he ambles across the University of Washington campus wearing a rumpled hand-me-down sweater on his way to try out for what many considered to be an elitist sport in which he had no skill. Making the team wasn't for Joe an athletic feat to boast about. Failure would have meant having to abandon school, and the alternative was not palatable. Thus began Joe's quest. But unbeknownst to him and his cohorts, their undaunted efforts would remake them in in ways unfathomable to their young adult minds and elevate them to the nation's and ultimately the world's attention. Rowing in absolute tandem with precise strokes at the exact moment is an art unequaled in sports. As I read... I searched my mind for equivalent competitions or situations. I thought of the runner's high I got, the point where long-distance runners feel like they could run for forever, not only despite the pain, but embracing it. I reflected on the scene of Paul McLean, played by Brad Pitt in A River Runs Through It, perfecting the art of fly fishing. I considered successful sports teams need... For players to eschew egos given there's no I in sport. And I pictured the exquisitely graceful synergism of couples ice dancing. But each of them failed to equate to the absolute harmony and perfection of rowing, the moment when a crew achieves swing, where they glide their craft across the water seemingly without effort. The closest metaphor or allusion to swing in eight-or rowing is a symphony orchestra in which one discordant note destroys an entire piece. In rowing, one discordant note is called catching a crab. When that happens, everything gets thrown off, and the team essentially starts anew as they watch their competitors race farther ahead. For the University of Washington's Huskies crew that faced never-ending obstacles up to and including the Olympics— Some de facto, others intentional, nothing short of perfection, swing, would get them the gold. The psychology behind the physical harmony is complex. It requires the rower to completely repress their ego while at the same time remaining true to their individualism in context of their abilities. It's a form of what in philosophy is called conjunction of opposites. When two opposing truths are equally valid. For me, that is what drove the story home. Yes, the decidedly non economic rags to riches tale is one for the ages, and Joe's and his fellow rowers' inspirational life stories tug at the heartstrings. But it was becoming educated about the intricacies not only of eight oar rowing, but also of swing, and how extraordinarily rare it is reached, that for me put the boys in the boat in the rarefied air of numinous storytelling. The chances of me rowing a boat at the level of swing are the same as me summiting Mount Everest. Neither will happen. But the image of an eight-person crew joining in precise synchronicity, that kundalini moment of peak performance, will serve henceforth as a mental visualization for perfection. The ideal to strive for, but rarely reached. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Winds and Food for Thought, Essays on Mind and Spirit. He lives in Georgetown. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.